I'm on holidays. Holidays? Is that the same as vacation in Canada? No, I prefer, actually I prefer to use the word holiday over vacation. That's a per, it's it's like it's like me calling my Monday my day of rest rather than my day off. Mm. It's all around the idea of proper leisure and rest. A holiday, like a vacation, sounds like a, a break from your work, as if priest is just a job. Well, <laughs> a holiday is a time of intentional rest um, and relaxation and leisure. So that's, yeah, so I'm on holidays. Not that we can, you know, not there's not a whole lot to do right now. <laughs> I'm trying to play it pretty safe, so I'm staying at our cathedral for the moment. Uh, um, and just for a few days, then I'll go visit my buddy Father David up in Courtney for a few days. They're kind of in my bubble. And then um, uh, then I'll be back at the parish on Friday. Just needed a, a break. For, you know, it, it's a, I think, and just hearing from friends and stuff, it's a pretty stressful time for everyone right now. So uh, having a little break from checking my emails, doing parish administration, um, preparing a weekend homily was has been not having to prepare a weekend homily has been actually the nicest uh, perk of this all. It's like it's not. Listen, I love to preach, but not having to enter into that rhythm every week or for one week is is a nice little break because Advent will be busier. We can't do our usual reconciliation services, so I'm gonna have to add more confession times. So it's, Advent season is gonna be quite busy, I think. Um, but yeah, so it's been yeah, it's been you know it's been fine. We uh, actually you and I hung out with some friends from. Uh, the Notre Dame Friendship Conference last year, having a Zoom chat the other night. Right, yeah. Which was a good time, you know, uh, being at the Morris Inn, but not at the Morris Inn, which is where we spent a lot of our socialization time. So that was good. I did see one group of friends who are kind of Amanda and Steve, who are, are in my Bible, essentially. So I went for dinner at their place. But it's just been not setting the alarm, praying. I've been doing, I've been catching up on studying. I know it, it's it's not ideal, but uh, I need to do it. Um so, I mean, but it's been good. I wrote seven pages of my thesis Ooh. and I wrote four articles for Simply Catholic. Um, so that's, that's, and I did, I had a book editing meeting today. <laughs> so nice. it's, been, it's been, but after this, now it should slow down and I can just kind of sit back and just do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. There is maybe nothing better on this earth than falling asleep with intentionally not setting your alarm. Mm-hmm. There is nothing more freeing, nothing more relaxing, nothing more indulgent than doing that. Yeah, exactly. It's been great. And so here's one little frustrating thing about myself that I've noticed over the time of rest lately, though. It's something I've noticed for a while, and I I wish it wasn't the case, but I tend to really focus well at like starting at like 830 at night. Mm-hmm. Like that is my prime time for writing and research. The problem is everybody wants you to work according to like a nine to five schedule. Like that's when people expect to get a hold of you, et cetera. Um, And uh, it's, you know, and that's fine. I mean, it's not a bad thing, but I'm like, man, why is it only now when I'm, you know, I'm supposed to, I should be in bed by like 11 o'clock, but it's been nice this week. It's like, yeah, do it. It's 12 o'clock. I can still study if I want because I don't have to be up at any time. I can sleep until nine if I want. Um, But it's also kind of frustrating because I'm like, that is prime time for studying. Like it's been in one way, it's been really great. I got a lot accomplished in the evenings here. But it's because I've had the freedom in my mornings to not have to worry about it. So it's just I wish I could concentrate better on that stuff during the day, but I mm-hmm. can't. And I just really hate it. I hate it. Yeah, it sucks. no, that's fair. Uh, I was thinking the other day, like, 
I just wish that everyone's schedule revolved around what I preferred. Mm-hmm. That's what I would like. You know, call Isn't me that, selfish. <laughs> I thought that's what I thought that that's what priesthood is, really. Right? Everyone just does <laughs> things according to our time, our schedule, when we want. And <sighs> if I want a three-hour nap, then I'm not going to book appointments because too bad. I, it's what I want. It's all yeah, about what I, I want. This is what priesthood is, right? So, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. What everyone wishes. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's been kind of interesting in all that, though, too, because like I'm starting to think like maybe then like maybe actually that's not a bad thing. Maybe focus your studying more for evenings when things are clearer and you have more free time. And then like, use the daytime to do the more mundane tasks like administration and email answering and stuff. And you don't, and then, cause those are, day, I don't have the energy at that time of day to do those larger tasks. I, I get it. Like, it's just, I get a second win at like nine o'clock at night. Mm, yeah. It sucks. I wish I didn't, but I do. Yeah. So, you know, so yeah, so that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm just doing a whole lot of nothing. Well, I've been doing some stuff, but now after today, I'll be able to do a whole lot of nothing. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and you're on your day of rests. I am. Day off, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You're at your brother's place. I am. I was going to talk about myself. I'm waiting okay. for you to do the thing. Oh, you're waiting. Oh, you want me to do the thing? Really? Yeah. Yeah. So if I don't do the thing, you won't do it. I'm just waiting for you to finish your part. Oh, okay. We've done like over 100 episodes. I think we know how uh, this works. Well, I, I know how it works. I'm just dangling you along. Okay. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop Welcome it. to Clerically Speaking. Thank I'm you. Father Harrison. Jeez, I'm Father Anthony. So, the other day, um, it's funny just how, how life-giving the normal little things of a parish will be. Like, there's a lot of stuff that is super draining right now. We're trying to figure out mass schedules and all this stuff that I've been complaining mm-hmm. about for weeks. And the reason why I'm still complaining about it is because we're still trying to figure it out, whatever. But, the other day, I had a baptism. And it was... A wonderful baptism. Now, all baptisms are wonderful. They're all amazing. I really genuinely enjoy them all. Mm-hmm. But this little little Italian-American baby uh, came in, and he had a ridiculous Italian name, and it made me very happy. But uh, the best part of it, you know, he had his little white, you know, suit, gown thingy, you know, baby thing on. But the best part about it was that he had a white chef's hat on mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. for for the baptism. So this amazing little. <laughs> Did he also do this and be like, forget about it? <laughs> he was very energetic and very talkative, um, but he didn't quite do the Italian uh, hand motion. But this perfect little bambino. And then uh, at the end, the family's taking some pictures and stuff. And they're like, say pasta fagiolo. And we're just like, ah, I love it. I love it. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. It made me so happy. It's also nice because that baptism, you know, we have seven different churches. Yeah. And this church I hadn't been in in months. And so I'm running around trying to find where the oils are at, where everything's at. Do we still have everything at this parish? Because we, mm-hmm. we've been moving stuff around. Um, and then afterwards, it was just a long weekend and a long Sunday. And uh, the pews at that parish are actually, they're padded. They're very comfy. So for like 10 minutes, I just laid down the pew and just vibed for a bit nice. in this nice little country parish that I hadn't been to in a long time. Question. Mm-hmm. Does one need to be baptized if they're already Italian? Uh, it's just kind of like um, it's like Italian Plus. Okay. You know, like Disney Plus. It's just like you unlock more features. You, you become even more so <laughs> like Italian. What? Like what? Like what? Like um, uh, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Your 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 sauce when you make your sauce never burns, even if you uh-huh. forget to stir it. Yeah. Like that'll be a thing that happens. Um, there's always there will always be a block of uh, cheese. You uh, you sweat olive oil. 
that no that happens already oh, okay okay yeah, 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 yeah okay is your dandruff actually parmesan uh, yes, yes, okay. yes, that happens as well. But you know, okay. like there's different, uh, in a sense, tiers in heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, like everyone is perfectly satisfied, uh, but there's going to be different, you know, kind of like, you know, hierarchies. Joseph is going to be higher than us, but we'll all be perfectly happy. Mm-hmm. Same sort of thing with Italianness and baptism. So if you're not Italian and you're baptized, you become Italian. But if you're Italian and then you get baptized, you just boop, go up a notch. Hmm. Yeah. Put that in your Christian anthropology. Um, I'll, I'll try. Yeah, I'll try. You I'll try. Interesting, huh? That's good. That's a, baptism is always fun. I, I, you know, I will say like that's actually one of the cool things in my new parish is like there's just been like an abundance of baptisms. So uh, it's been nice to. They're always a joyful occasion. They really yeah. are. You know, depending. Even though, yeah, every it's true. Everyone who's coming in, different levels of faith. Yeah. Some people just see it as a nice kind of cultural ritual. Others see it as a very important moment in the life of the child. But in the end, it's always a joyful moment, and it's always a time where. Um, it really, even if it's something cultural, it's still got a seed of faith involved. Mm-hmm. Right? They wouldn't be doing this if they thought it completely hocus pocus. Right. They think right? something good is going on. Exactly. So, yeah. It's also just, uh, I think everyone has looked around and uh, like, we have to do all of our baptisms and weddings right now before it's too late. So we've been doing a lot of baptisms. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of weddings almost every week. So, yeah. Yeah. I was telling the rector today uh, um, that the... I've noticed, or I said, because I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've been finding like a lot of funerals haven't been happening. You, mm. I, I've done a lot of anointings and stuff, but a lot of funerals. And I think that's partly because people are waiting until things die down on the terms of uh, COVID where they can maybe bring more of their family and friends into the church for the funeral. Because um, also here, again, we're restricted to 50 people, so you can only have so many people in the church, right? Um, but, I, you know, I said to them at the same time, and again, this is important for anyone to hear because if you know, if you if you're restricted to 50, whatever your restrictions are, do the funeral now. And like I said to like I, what I'm trying to encourage people to say, do the funeral now, and then when things are over and you can invite more people, we can have a memorial mass for them. And I'll do something separate from our weekday mass, and we'll you can invite as many people as you want. So it's just yeah, I agree. People are trying to get stuff done before because I think uh, I think people see impending lockdowns in a lot of places. Yeah, it also goes to show that different parishes are in different places. So, like, my parish this past year, we had a total of 270-some funerals over Holy the past year. Holy smokes. And that was not – that was kind of like a lower year. Uh, I think, was it two How years you, ago, we had almost 300. Yeah, That's like, like 100, last, that's 100 funerals a priest a year for you guys. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, for I mean, for example, like just last week, I had three funerals, and then the seminarian did five uh, funeral services outside of mass. Holy uh, smokes! So I mean, it's a bigger week, but it's not uncommon. So I haven't um, had a funeral in over a month. Yeah, I I have never had a month without a funeral, <laughs> um, except for That's when we were that like in super lockdown, right? Um, but yeah, so that's that's just a part of the part of the gig in my parish. We just do a lot, crazy. A lot of funerals. It's, well, also it's it's it gets funny because like where I am, a lot of retired yeah. people. Yeah. But also at the same time, it's um, we're also one of the more secular places in Canada on Vancouver mm-hmm. Island. So even people who might be Catholic, um, for whatever reason, they actually just don't want a Catholic funeral. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, speaking of, I don't know. Actually, no. Never mind. No transition. Let's just go into Suma. Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica Summa Tweetologica
So the Summa uh, Theologica, St. Thomas Aquinas' summary of theology, and the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. And I'm just going to pull up the old Summa DM. While you uh, pull that up, so yeah. uh, producer Nick has heard the complaining of our ungrateful watchers of YouTube uh, who are like, where's the Summa Bumper? I'm watching the YouTube and I want the Summa Bumper. Well, apparently producer Nick has been working on a little Summa animation. So if you haven't just seen that on YouTube, it will be popping up uh, every once in a while uh, soon. So there you go. And producer Nick loves you all very much. Well, and I, I texted him because like, here's the thing. I know how to entice him. How did right. you entice? I think I was actually in a YouTube. I actually no, it was when uh, our last episode was going. So with YouTube, when you're uploading a video, it, it actually starts as a premiere first. So it's just live streaming the video first. Sure. And yeah. so he, there's a chat going, and he was there, and I just popped in to say hi. There was a few other listeners there as well, and um, and everyone's like, "Yeah, where's the Suma bumper?" Blah blah blah. And I said, "You know, hey Nick, you could always animate something because I knew." I knew if I gave him the chance to do something creative, he wouldn't yeah. be able to say no. It's he very true. And he and the idea that he could make the Suma something even more beautiful by adding an animation or a music video to accompany the song, <laughs> I knew it would be just too delicious for him to say no to. It's true. It's true. So you, you just you know how to work your producer when you need to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, this comes uh, from Matt the Full Nelson 5.0 at former taxman. And it's just a beautiful, simple tweet. Being a dad means raking the leaves twice because it's worth double effort to see and hear kids enjoy jumping in the leaf piles. Hashtag year of the dads. It's just a beautiful, simple tweet that isn't that really what a dad is where you're going to put in this extra effort where they're going to make a mess of things. You're going to do it again. And they're going to make a mess of things again because they just have that simple joy. It's also that beautiful, simple childlike joy of just jumping in leaves and just making a mess of things. And, and it's just, I just thought it was a beautiful little summary sure, of being a dad. Sure. That's one kind of dad. Okay. But I'm pretty sure my dad, as soon as I was able to crawl, he just taped a rake to my back and let me crawl outside so that the rake leaves would be raked sooner. As soon as I was able to hold it, I'm raking the leaves. You're not jumping in leaves. There's work to be done. We have a big yard. Get to work, son. Which is a different <laughs> different way of going about. I don't I don't know if I've ever jumped in a pile of leaves. It would it would you bother me because that you... means if I, if I jump in the pile of leaves, I have more work to do now. This is ridiculous. You have, uh, man, your childhood. I got questions about your childhood now. Because, like, what child hasn't jumped in leaves? I mean, I maybe once, maybe uh-huh. once, but I think it was more like get get the rake and start raking them up. And if you jump in those pile of leaves, you have to rake them again. So, like, this is, I will not do that. I do not see the uh, uh, appeal of this at all. So, huh. how about that? <laughs> you need some more leisure in your life. Probably. To enter into just the wonder of jumping into a pile of leaves. It's like the same thing like kids like stomping their feet in puddle, puddles. They just – kids know how to and, enjoy – And mess up your shoes? Your boots. Boots? Yeah, but you still get like yucky rainwater on your clothes. That's unacceptable. Why would anyone think that's fun? Why would any child uh, think that's it fun? It sounds Ridiculous. like your whole childhood was completely joyless. I wouldn't say that. I mean, once you raked up the leaves, you have the satisfaction of doing a job well done. So you're. And what is what is so this, more fun than that? Do you know what I hear in all this? Americanism. What do you hear? Do you? I don't know. I think it's just um, you know caring for uh, the environment around you, being a good steward of the land entrusted to you, um, of your you know of the goods given to you, and that brings me joy. 
if uh, uh-huh. Frivaldi brings other people joy, then I mean, whatever. But it just seems seems so a little, does this little mean to me. Does this mean you're the one breaking leaves at your rectory? I am not because we have no yard in our rectory. Oh, okay. So okay, okay, yeah. Huh. Interesting. That's all yeah. I got. Cool. What do you got? All right. So this is a tweet from. From uh, Mary Rexavaro, and she tweets saying, cleaning products pre-COVID be like organically made from the earth, basically just herbs and dirt. Cleaning products now designed in a lab to kill anything within a 50 mile radius. <laughs> and I just it's it's so funny how much uh, like little ways the culture has changed because of yeah. the COVID thing. Yeah. Like, I don't want any natural cleaning product i want a a scientific laser beam to to zap all the surfaces in my house i appreciate that also some of the cleaning products have gotten weirdly aggressive so i have seen as many people have tons of different kinds of hand sanitizers and there are tons scattered throughout all of my church buildings now and one of the bottles like boldly on the bottle uh said what did you touch I feel like it's a very aggressive way to market your hand sanitizer. Like, first of all, none of your business. Second of all, I don't care for what that implies. Third of all, just disinfect my hands. We don't need to ask all these questions. Hand mm-hmm. sanitizer bottle. Just do your job, all right, so that nobody gets sick. And also, I feel like the, the hand sanitizer in the hospitals, they have a special kind of hospital smell that the other ones don't. Hmm. I don't know if that's like special science in the hospitals, Might but whatever, my hospital. hands always smell a little bit, a little bit different. It's like hmm. hand sanitizer, you know. Um, and then you've got hand sanitizer with aloe. It's See, like I just, I just, I just, I just want, I want a cleaning product that I know if I let out to a few particles in, I'm probably going to get cancer. Like I want it to be that strong that it would probably destroy <laughs> right. the human body. You actually need like an N95 mask so that you don't inhale the fumes oh. of your hand sanitizer. For those who are watching the video, we uh, uh, the one little thing here is that uh, I'm at the rectory at the cathedral, which the Wi-Fi can be a little spotty at points. So we apologize in advance yeah, for that. Yeah, rectories have a habit of not having great Wi-Fi. This is what I've My noticed. rectory at my parish, great, great Wi-Fi. Love it. Okay, it's fantastic. That's good. Yeah, but here, for whatever reason, I'm not sure what's up. So yeah. anyways, anyways, we want to keep it short this week for a reason. So let's go into presbyteral exhortations. And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Oh. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh. It's oh. the best part. Yes. Yes. Quite. Yes. Quite. So I know a lot of people have heard about it, obviously. A lot of people have questions. A lot of people have comments. We want to, we're just going to, we're going to talk about our response to the McCarrick report. Um, We recognize there's a lot of good stuff that's been put out already. CNA has a great podcast kind of analyzing it. For example, there's a lot of good articles out there. Bishop Barron had a a special podcast drop the day of, um, or a couple day or day after or something like that uh, about this. So there's a lot out there. We recognize we're just another voice in that uh, cacophony of voices looking at it. But I do think it's important to hear kind of how two priests are approaching the questions that the report and, and our, our responses and um, frustrations. Now, I will give a little caveat. I have not read the entire report, uh, partially because it's 450 pages, and that's a lot. I have skimmed it. I have read stuff that I found I thought would be interesting. But I think I've read enough articles. I've read and listen, we've been hearing about this for two years now. 
I think a lot of the stuff in the report was stuff we already knew. Um, but I think we also want to kind of give voice because I think, I don't know about you, but reading the report fundamentally left me frustrated. Hmm. And I felt like I worried that nothing has actually changed. And I think it's important to explore these questions, honestly. We haven't really prepped much for this. Um, we just kind of want to speak openly and honestly about this uh, to give our own personal voices to the question. Yeah, I think, first of all, uh, I know like a lot of people who even you know, who knew about the whole McCarrick scandal that broke two years ago, a lot of them didn't even know the report came out a week ago. Right. I like some, you know, unless you're kind of, it hasn't made uh, popular news yet, doesn't seem to have. I don't know if it's um, going to. I don't know if it's going to either. Uh, but uh, so uh, uh, it's a report that we've been kind of waiting for for basically two years that um, I guess investigates who knew what, maybe sort of about the McCarrick uh, scandal, the history of McCarrick's career. What different prelates thought about what was going on, if they knew, if they didn't know, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's a it's a hefty boy. It's it's yeah, like you said, it's like over four hundred pages long. So yeah, so I guess my initial reactions, and it's why I perhaps struggled to read the whole thing because as I was reading it, I got a lot of thoughts going through my head about it. But I think at the end of it, I was honestly frustrated. Now, like, so for, for example, I want to I want to raise one thing that JD brings up in the CNA podcast that I thought was important and good. That he really he believes, and I think it's a fair point that needs to be validated. That a lot of people who contributed to this report uh, thought they were doing a good job and the right thing, and were being more transparent. And um, I even think some of the tone of the document manifests this. So I, I don't, I, you know, as a first step, you know, great. I'm glad we've made a first step. But my, my worry about the whole document is like, so for example, there's a lot of times where it just takes people at their word. Uh, different bishops, different clergy, different lay people involved in different things. Um, it just takes people, it's just, it's funny, like, uh, the document takes people at their word and saying, oh no, I had nothing to do with it. I knew nothing. And it does, that's, and that's where it drops things, and that's it. I found that very frustrating because the whole way McCarrick got away with the stuff he did was people trusting his word all the time, despite the constant rumors and stories arising around him. And I feel like the I don't know if maybe it was the purpose of the report that it should have gone into like who got into leadership positions in the church because of him. Was this for favors? Was this um, to help bolster a defense for him? Um, was you know, and people who worked closely for, to him, I think their feet have to be held to the fire, absolutely, because this was so well known by so many people that it seems to me that this it would have been um, how do I want to put it? It seems to me that this would have been impossible for those people to not know something. Yeah, so I I have a lot of thoughts. Um, my first is like my initial reaction is I've become very numb to everything. Now, right. if you were to look at my copy of the Mayor Report they printed out using a lot of our parish's paper, um, if you look at all the notes, like there's scribbly underlines, WTF next to this paragraph, just what? Yeah. What in all capital letters pointing to yeah. this sentence, you know, there's yeah. there's that. But it's it's... 
I kind of assumed that we knew that a lot of people knew, but I guess I, I'm just yeah. I I am I'm maybe tired of being angry, or maybe the anger has just like been shoved into a nice ball into my stomach and is just staying there. But like I felt just very uh, numb. I didn't expect a lot from it. Um, but I think there are some things that are worth emphasizing and talking about. And I, I, we may have mentioned this before with this whole scandal thing, but there's this um, story, and because a lot of people think that uh, McCarrick just abused seminarians, but that's not true. Uh, he also abused lay people as well. And uh, there's, you know, written this story about this family. And uh, the father's this family, uh, Irish Catholic, the idea of being uh, a priest, being you know close to your family was just meant the world to him, especially someone who was a Monsignor and a big deal. Uh, and uh, McCarrick grew closer and closer to his family, uh, would come over every week. And what I thought was interesting is like, does the family inviting him over every week or is he just showing up every week? Um, but who knows? But uh, the, the mother is seeing more and more the actions of, of McCarrick, of the weird way he is touching um, her sons, like just out there in public, in front of people. And the husband would see the same things, but couldn't see it. Couldn't tell that there was anything wrong. Uh, but his mom's instincts knew that something was wrong. And it mentions it even in the report, like the idea of sexual assaults, or we're going we're gonna to use some words here, so if you haven't already turned it off, if there's kids uh, around, you might want to do that now. Um, but, like, the idea of, like, molestation or pedophilia or anything like this, I think we forget that the culture did not have the tools to even talk about this. And when you don't have the language to talk about this sort of thing, it makes the reality difficult to grasp in your mind. So what's going on is that it's it's you can see something and know in your gut that it's wrong, but have an inability to react to it. Also, just the whole thing with 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 trauma that, you know, we talk about fight or flight, but another response to trauma is to freeze. And you see that in the responses of some of his victims, like there's a, a freezing, a a helplessness. You kind of become, uh, you know, yeah, frozen. Um and what was interesting, though, is that even though the mom didn't have the language to describe what was going on, she knew it was wrong. She knew it was wrong. And she um, went to the library and got this book, this compendium of like all the addresses uh, for bishops in the United States, which was what you had to do before the interwebs. And she hand wrote all these letters, uh, warning all these bishops about it. And... The report could find no copies of those letters, not one. Uh, so it's frustrating uh, that. So on one hand, yeah, there's not the cultural language to talk about this thing, but human beings can still tell when evil things happen, and the fact that time and time again this was ignored bothers me. The other thing that is I've been thinking about since we heard about all the McCarrick stuff is what do you do with rumors? You know, any parish will tell you that there's rumors all the time, that there's gossip. In any human community, there's going to be a lot of gossip. One of the most ridiculous ones in my parish 
when we first got there, because we, we were the seven different parishes becoming one parish, that uh, someone, a rumor got spread that we had sold our nicest looking church so that it could become a mosque. Another rumor was that we had already sold a church. In fact, and the rumor was that the person saw the legal documentation that we had sold this church. This person saw it with her own eyes. Both of these things are completely false and obviously false in the sense that if we were to sell a church building like that would make the Newcastle news. Like there would be you have to bring that stuff to City Hall or whatever else. It'd be a public sort of thing. So there's a lot of rumors that are in a parish. But it gets difficult because what do you do when everyone knows something but you don't really know it? Like everyone knows something weird is going on but not a lot of people have firsthand accounts of it. And I think it's very understandable that um, it's especially understandable that not a lot of people uh, came forward and put their names to a piece of paper. Now, some did. Some very much so did. And they were either ignored or they were blamed or whatever. Uh, but I think it's hard for us to comprehend just how terrifying bringing to the authority of the church this insanely evil thing is. Like how difficult that would be for people. So... That's the thing that, I, like, if I hear rumors about stuff in my diocese, what do I do with that? What about the open secrets that are a part of any community? How do you respond when you are, like, two, three, four levels removed from a thing? How do you pursue justice in that? I don't know. And it's something I've been struggling with and I've been talking with a priest about as well. So, while on one hand, yeah... Definitely people in authority should have, I mean, did know or should have known and should have done something about it. And we can talk about that later. Uh, but what did the rest of us do? And what was also interesting is that they put in copies of these letters sent anonymously over the course of a few years, sent to a few different bishops, that if you were to look at this letter out of context, you're like, oh, a crazy person wrote this. It's all in caps. It's kind of citing scripture and kind of you know, apocalyptic sort of way. But the content of those letters was true. But because it seems like this person is crazy who's writing them, they're ignored. You know, because I, I think that was one of the big things that came out of the document was the constant rumors. And yeah. this is the thing, but, and I think this is where I think judgment should err on the, let's not just talk to this person, let's actually start digging, Right. If these, if if there's multiple rumors, and we, like, listen, we've heard it from priests we know, like you and I know, knew of these rumors, or even saw questionable at the very least actions on the part of McCarrick, yeah. but didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And part of it, part of it is stuff we've talked about before on the podcast, at least in the American Church, which is the problem of power in the in the American hierarchy. Right now, I want I say that because, and why do I say put the word American there? Is because, again, part of it's not just not my experience in the Canadian church, uh, and it's not everyone's experience everywhere. But there is definitely this association between power and hierarchy in, in the American Episcopacy that this report makes very clear, very clear, and McCarrick used it to his absolute advantage. So, what do you do? Like, what do you do? Like, so for example, let's say you're a seminarian who, who notices something like this. How do you respond? 
what do you do when you're probably not going to, when you feel like you're powerless, it's going to be ignored, et cetera. Um, and not just powerless, but incredibly vulnerable. Like, I mean, this is the difficult thing. Like some people might wonder why more seminarians didn't speak out or say something. Uh, and like the situation that, that, that seminarians are in where they want more than anything else to be a priest of Jesus Christ, to be a good priest for the church. That not only this is what they want, they think this is what God wants for them as well. And that can be taken away from you like that. Because the bishop can just, without any reason, without any recourse, without any counsel, can just choose not to ordain you. And not only that, the bishop can, you know, let other bishops know that this guy isn't this a is good thing. guy. You're going, yeah, you're going to apply to another diocese. They're going to ask for the file. Yeah. And they're going to see that stuff. And like some bishops might say, do you know what? No, we're going to give you a chance. Some might not, right? But, and, and, and part of it is because, like, like, and I think, and this is where it gets hard because sometimes it might be a guy reading too much into something, right? Because that, that happens too, right? Yes. That happens too, and that becomes an issue. So, like, there is all sorts of subtleties that are at play here that people need to kind of take into account. But at the same, but I think for, I think the difference here with McCarrick was that the rumors were consistent widespread knowable and no one did anything to investigate them um the only people who get blamed in the report are dead yeah and that frustrates me because that's impossible Mm -hmm. that to me is an actual impossibility and um um I, and I just, feel, I don't know, maybe this is where journalists are just going to have to do a lot of dirty work to actually really uncover the truth of things. And I'm mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of hoping they will, actually. Um, and, and I guess that's where my frustration and anger comes in the whole thing. It's just like there is really, in the end, actually no transparency because I found that the report said mostly stuff that we already knew. Like, it didn't, like okay, there's more stories. Like, like the mother with those letters was really, and, and the, and the sup- religious superior who was just kind of totally dismissed because, you know, someone had a prejudgment about her. Those stories broke my heart mm-hmm. um, because here are people who are actually, and, and, and that this is like, but this is the thing, the authorities in the, like those, like at the nunciature and in and the call and the con- congregation of bishops, they've had stuff coming to them for 30 years. Even other bishops had raised concerns. How come nothing ha- and that's the that's my frustration. The report doesn't answer the essential question. How did he how who did he talk to? Who did he use? Who did he manipulate to get what he wanted? Mm-hmm. Well, you see a little bit of this. Like just looking at his career, uh, McCarrick's entire career is this acquisition of power under the guise of something good. Oh, he's a really good fundraiser. Or he's helping out with with uh, this thing in the USCCB or that thing or that thing, you know. Um, if you look at his travel record, there's one paragraph that just has his travel record, and the dude was everywhere, everywhere. And what connections is he making? And the people he knows. And one of the most disturbing things about it was the his interactions with John Paul II. And you see, uh, like, the snippets of conversations that are in the report and the interactions, that he would always do everything he could to make a good impression on JP2, to crack a joke, to make him laugh, to uh, when JP2 is visiting America, McCarrick's going with him. 
He's making sure to, uh, you know, just always have that FaceTime with the Pope. And you see he's manipulating the guy. And it, it, and the crazy thing is, and the difficult thing is, if you take it out of this context, like if you had no idea who McCarrick was and you just look at those interactions, you would say this is a really wonderful, healthy relationship between uh, a pope and one of his uh, brother bishops. But everything gets twisted in this. Like all of McCarrick's, you know, talents as far as fundraising or whatever else. Like, oh, those are those are good things that you want a bishop who can organize stuff and do that sort of thing. That That seems good. Or even like the... I mean, power is for service. You are given the ability to serve others. But you see what he's doing is he's making himself invaluable. He's making himself like no one else can do the things that I can do, so you need me. And all that power allows him to do whatever else he wants to do. Yeah, so, but this is, I think this raises a good question. Okay, it's, it's obvious that him being a good fundraiser was seen as a great benefit. Why? Why was that one of the overarching key features? There's no mention of a life of prayer. There's no mention of his work with, you know, like, I think when you're looking at people for Episcopal leadership, questions around the interior life, service to the poor, living out the gospel, like, does, he, does this person take interest in um, building up their intellectual life? Um, are they a good administrator? Like there, like there are all sorts of questions that I think ought to be asked that aren't asked. Instead, it's, it's all these very, again, money has a place in the church, but it sounds to me, this, it got too much, it had too much of a place. Right. And why, so why was that the overarching category? And that, and again, that's not a question that's asked in the report that should have been. Mm -hmm. Why, why were they using this as the category of judgment? Because that should be, if okay, it has a place, but honestly, in the grand schemes of eternity, that's pretty low on the rung. Not the most pre pre preeminent one, and 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 that's again, that's that's what kind of frustrates me. It, it's that it, 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 in a way, he played a system that actually looked at power in a kind of um, and, and money as the kind of overarching goods. As, as someone who could wield these things for good for the church. But I'm like, maybe we need to really re-look re, re at, at how we, we, we understand the Episcopacy and how we understand Episcopal appointments through all this. And I'm hoping we do, but I, I, and that's my kind of my worry is I don't think we will. Part of the thing is, is the church just too big? Like when you can't... Um... Because a lot of these decisions, you have to trust other people's judgment, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's how Episcopal appointments kind of work. You get the good word from all these other people who you kind of trust, and you have to trust them to make it happen. Um, yeah, but, I mean, and that, that has its place and role. And, I mean, listen, again, the, the whole process um, plays into this because mm -hmm. there is a process that asks questions of a lot of people, right? Yeah. Like, uh, for those who don't know, often the way a bishop is selected is that um, different priests and people that this person may know may get a letter from the nuns teacher with a questionnaire about either can you name someone or what do you think of this person? You're under pontifical seal. You can't tell anyone that you've received this letter. Please fill this out and have it registered, mailed or whatever to back to the nuns teacher for, for their file. Um, 
So, and it does put out a questionnaire, but I even find the questionnaire maybe from what even they said in the report is insufficient. It's, it's, it's only worrying about image issues. You know, is there anything about this person that could cause scandal and stuff like this? But again, that's the thing. It's like, I don't know. I just, I guess in the end, I really just worry that we haven't, that we're not going to learn our lesson in all this. And, and this is perhaps my worry that, again, listen, in one sense, I was kind of happy this didn't overtake the internet <laughs> because I don't know if I could take it anymore. <laughs> mm. um, there is a bit of fatigue around all these issues. But on the other hand, I wish, my, I wish it would have caught fire because what it would have done is it would have put those who put the report together or at least people who are mentioned the report to the fire just to find out the truth of things. And this is where my frustration comes over and over again. And, and I guess, so this kind of gets me around to a topic. So um, there, there is a, there's a little blog called Gaudium at Spes 22 that's run by Larry Chapp, who's a former uh, professor of theology. Uh, someone actually I quite like. I, I've read, I read a lot of his stuff when I was in seminary. And he's been commenting on a lot of the issues around Vigano and all this stuff lately. But he wrote a, a response blog post to to the McCarrick report, and he made a point that I found very interesting um, and important. And it actually, in some ways, dovetailed with something we talked about early on in the history of this podcast, which was like Catholic atheism. And he said that he felt that this was at the heart of the report was we haven't dealt with the overriding issue of atheism in the church. And I think he was dead right. I really do. I felt, um, and he says, like, he says, listen, I, like, it's everywhere. He goes, he even kind of says something like, even in me, like, and like, honestly, it's even in me as a priest. Like, I'm not saying it's the overarching thing per se, but that there's a bit of a, a spirit of atheism that makes it hard to see God clearly in the world. And so what happens in the life of the church is that we, we tend to now look at, the, at the church's governance, etc., through the lens of um, of building up the institution, does this person fundraise well? So it's all in these worldly categories instead of in the category of holiness. And I think um, I really think it's a vital question because it's perhaps one of the biggest things. Like in a way, this is a symptom, a major symptom, or a major. Um, illness in the church and the McCarrick is really and McCarrick's almost like a, a symbol or a sign of, of this major issue because when some you know I, I, it's all banal it's all banal mm -hmm. and this is why uh, you know we complain about all the reforms are just either institutional reforms or policy reforms and it's like we need something more and I agree with that but how do you make people more holy? Like, how do you fix that? Because no, no policy you put in there is going to make people holier. You can't just like type something on a a you know a um, on a nice Vatican letterhead and then make people fear God. Have we perhaps over spiritualized the leadership of the church? What do you mean? If you have um, an ounce of understanding of church history, we know that this is not the first nor the last um, incident 
of clerical misuse of power and abuse. It's actually the norm. It's I was the just, norm I've been, through, yeah. So yeah, throughout history, throughout history. Now, I say this not trying to say we should be um, just accepting of it. Yeah. Okay? No. 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 No, um, no. No reform in the life of the church ever has been. But I don't want to put this. And in a way, we've been very blessed in the 20th century with saintly popes, which is also not the norm. So perhaps we've over-spiritualized a lot in the church and that we, 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 we think that everybody in leadership positions have to be holy, and they don't. Not to say that we should just be accepting of it, but rather to say, like, maybe it, 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 it's hard because then what it does is it starts to hold a lot of people suspect in leadership in the church if they can hold any authority over us. Like, there, there, it's, it's so tensive, but this is not, like, in a way, this is normal. Now, again, we should do everything to cry out against it and to change it. But the only way it's going to change is if we actually want to become saints. Like, like for me, like, honestly, what this report has done in a good way, and it did, and the same thing when the McCarrick stuff broke, is it confronts me with my own inobedience to God. My own disobedience, I should say. Because we all, listen, we all do it. We all have a disobedience to God. There's, there is the reign of sin in us that still wants to kind of reign supreme and to, and to resist God. And it happens to everybody from the holiest to the unholiest. And this report forces me to reflect. And it, like, in a way, I'll be honest, even for myself, especially because of COVID and just all the different stuff, it's, hard, it's been hard to be reflective lately. And in a good way, this report has said, no, stop and look at your heart. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. I don't know if this is a bad thing or a good thing, but it's a thing. <laughs> Uh, that has been going on with me is that I think the report has made me a little more paranoid because I look at someone like John Paul II who is a canonized saint and who completely has misjudged the characters of uh, a few very evil men in the church and I've always uh, felt a little uh, wary of people who too eagerly compliment me or when you get to a parish, the first people who really want to talk to you. Or um, the subtle way, because I've been duped before in the parish by people who are like, hey, I can help you out. This is what I do. Um, I know what's going on and stuff like that. Uh, and I get worried like, to develop the, the prudence and wisdom to judge those things and to figure out whether or not a person is trustworthy. That's like an important skill. But I get worried, will I go too far in that way? Like, will I just close myself off to everybody because I'm worried that I'm going to be manipulated or that, uh, and also because people are really freaking complicated. Yeah. And like, and we like to say that you, evil people are, are monsters, but actually they're just people that someone can do both very good things and bad things. And that can happen in the same person. Yeah. You know, I think it, does it get to a different level when you get to someone who's, you know, serially abused, sexually abusing people? Yeah, I think that goes to a next level. But I think the degree, I mean, the difference is in degree, not kind. Like, I see a lot of the same 
uh, dynamics that work in this big story of the McCarrick Report. I see the same dynamics that happen in parishes, sometimes in seminaries. Uh, hey, producer Nick, come say hi. Are you recording? Yeah, we're recording. No. I'm going to have to edit this out. No! Yeah, yeah, you are. Okay. So we're talking about the McCarrick Report, so I figured you saying hi will we'll, we'll cheer people up. Say hi in a nice cheery way. Hello! See, don't you guys feel happier now? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> this stuff's bad. Yeah, it is. All right, I'll talk to you later. You want a coffee? Uh, yeah. Thanks. Cool. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I love recording at Patricia Nick's house. Um, yeah. so, but yeah, like, uh, and so what has happened? <sighs> okay, so uh, a few weeks ago, almost a month ago, because I'm going to see my spiritual director in a week or so. He gave me as a penance, Psalm 131. Does that ring a bell? Vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's an unfair question to ask another Catholic. Do you know what Psalm 131 is? It's the it's a really short one that talks about um, how I have not gone after things uh, greater than me. Right. Instead, I have like stilled my uh, soul. Yeah. Um, it's basically this very short psalm saying like, Lord, I trust in you. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about things too sublime for me. And mm. that's it. <laughs> and it's been the most difficult penance I've received in a long time. It's been a long time since I've looked at a piece of scripture and thought, no. Like my heart went like, no. Because mm. there are really big, really important things happening. And I have to understand them. And I have to act properly. And I have to right. do things. <clears throat> and so I keep staring at that scripture and then staring at the tabernacle. And this is where the temptation to atheism hits me. Hmm. Because like, no, 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 Lord, I have, I have to be the one who's prudent. I have to be the one who's wise. Right. And instead what the Lord has been teaching me is like, you have to trust me completely. Mm-hmm. And have peace even as you go through all these difficult things. And like that's the the balance is in completely trusting god does that make sense yeah i guess i'm not describing it well enough you know because like like, i know some people are going to say okay that's all fine and dandy right but what about like is there a way forward to creating reforms to stop characters like this from arising like i I, like listen i think like so for example there is i i found a lot of cries for seminary reform in all this and and I get it. And like, listen, I think where this comes from is our desire to try and give some sort of answer to things. And so we figure if we can fix something, then maybe like it, it can become it becomes an expression of control of I want to build I want to have some sense of semblance of control in this massive evil. Um, so it comes from all sorts of places. And, and we also have to accept the fact that most of us can't do much to change this. Because um, in the end, we can only change what we have direct influence over. Um, so you and I, Father Anthony, we can do stuff in our parishes. Yeah. You know, I can do, you know, just because of different positions I hold in my diocese, I can even do stuff within my diocese. But that, and we can do stuff through our podcast. This is our sphere of influence, and it, and we have to be okay with recognizing that we can't really do much beyond that. And that is, I think that's hard because we want to see something change. And it's like, and maybe, I don't know, 
I, and you know, maybe I think part of the frustration, I think it's important for people to hear, like we, we feel kind of, I don't know, I feel kind of clueless in, in all this. Like I, we're kind of sighing a lot and, um, and, and becoming flustered because we don't know what else to do. <laughs> we've, we've tried everything. Our, like my parishes, every parish I've been in, we've worked very hard to create safe environment, right? Um, we've worked hard to train our people to be able to recognize things if things are weird. Um, I am, I'm like, I'm a stickler for this stuff, actually. Like I just, um, I've had to say no to things because I've felt it's not safe for me or for, for anyone, right? Not because I'm going to do anything, but because we need to like start creating a new normal in how we run parishes with me, with minors and stuff. But I don't know what else to do. Like outside personally, be trying to become a saint. Because, uh, and, and for some people, they feel like that's a cop-out. Um, that that's, and I'm like, and like maybe there is going to be a reformer who will come along to call things out. But that's for God to call that person. That's not for us to create that ourselves. Am I wrong? I don't think so. Uh I wish I had better answers. Like, I mean, part of me thinks like, what if, what if, uh, people wrote well thought out letters to their bishops about this? Hmm. You know, it's funny. I, um, sometimes every once in a while, I don't know how it happens, but somebody gets like the email list for every priest in my diocese mm-hmm. and they will send an email to every priest in my diocese, mm-hmm. uh, about some sort of problem in the diocese. And sometimes I will read those emails and be like, you know what? I don't disagree with the problems you were pointing out, but no one's going to listen to you because of the way you worded this. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not fair, Mm -hmm. right? Like, maybe it's like, you know, I'm sorry. Like, just because you hurt people's sensibilities doesn't mean your point is any less valid. But, like, I look at this like, if you did a slightly better job at trying to make yourself heard, uh, or, or spoke in a way that would be more like, does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Uh, like, when you come off short, abrasive, like thinking you're right rather than in a sense of service to the common unity of the church. Uh, ten- people and, tend and, to tune yeah. you out naturally. Or and okay, and like that's the best reading of it. Yeah. But you know, just let's just even say that like you might you might have hurt you might have hurt a priest's feelings or a bishop's feelings, and yeah. they don't want to listen to you because you're just another crazy person. Like, right. like you have to play the game a little bit when you do these things. Yeah. Um, but apart from a massive letter writing campaign, uh, to let people in power know that this is a thing that bothers people, it still does. Um. And, like, I wonder, like... So, because, like, with all that, I think the yeah. question becomes, and I think this is where a lot of anger and frustration, especially on the part of laity, come in, is are bishops willing to lose their job over this? Because right now, it seems like they're not. No. Uh, and even are priests willing to lose their jobs? Now, by this, I don't mean, like, they're going to cease ministry, but maybe they live a life of penance in a monastery. Um that you what yeah actually i uh i heard stuff and i didn't do anything about it or i heard stuff and i still recommended him and that's on me and i was wrong and i made the wrong judgment and out of obedience to the common good of the church and her life 
You see, because like all these, like there's a lot of stuff in there about the concern for reputation. The best way to make you reputable as a church is to say, I was complicit in this and I'm going to live a life of penance now because of that. I'm going to go retire to a monastery. I give up my archdiocese or whatever. And um, I've resigned to the Pope. Like like all those Chile bishops a couple years ago, all submitted yeah. resignation letters to the Pope. That is the right move. And I'm not seeing, like, this is the thing. All we're hearing is words and we're not, like, this is, there is a time for words. Right now, it is kind of a time for action. Yeah. And we're not seeing that. There's no one apologizing. There's no one taking responsibility. And and and, what it, and I, where they don't recognize, maybe, in all of this, and I'm not saying, because here's the other thing. Not every bishop's complicit. Most of them aren't, okay? But maybe maybe they know someone who was. It, it's It's... If no one takes responsibility, the schism in the North American church is only going to get worse. Because of the lack of accountability, radical figures are coming up, promoting disunity, because they're the only ones who are angry. And it's and so there has to be some level of responsibility now on our leadership. And, and I, I just worry that nothing's going to happen. And so that's my thing. It's like, so how do we hold, how do we hold feet to the fire? And I, and I say this, like, listen, I know I'm a priest. I'm under a bishop. You're under a bishop. Like we're, we, yeah. we, we, I'm not saying this stuff lightly. Now, again, I'm in the Canadian church. So things are a lot different here. I, and I, I recognize this as an outsider per se, but like, why can't, why, for example, can't the, can't Rome give the files open up all the boxes on McCarrick in at the congregation of bishops open up all the files well well just I let mean, us see let's let's let see okay if they do that once maybe they have to do that again yeah but it's not a bad but, thing right well this is what this is what it's going to take this gets back to the atheism thing for a a bishop to resign that takes a lot of faith on the part of that bishop to be transparent in these things you've got to trust uh ultimately in god um and i uh, yeah man um hmm. i don't know i got no answers i just have questions but, but i think because let's let's uh as we wrap up i do have this intuition at the very least that what we want to happen i think we're in the midst of it hmm I think it's hard to see, mm -hmm. but yeah, the fact that there is a McCarrick report, there's never been anything like it. Right. In like the history of the church, this has not happened before. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that um, these things are more out in the open than they ever have been. Uh, we always want God to purify the church, but the purification, I mean, just look at your own life. The purification process in your life, in my life, in whoever's listening, like that process is long and painful. Right. It takes a long time. <laughs> and I think we're in the midst of it in the church. So does this mean that we will actually see more investigations to try and hold things to the fire? Because like this is the issue. But here's the thing. We're not gonna be able to I'm, see we're not gonna be able maybe, to see anything until someone in a, not until someone in a chancery gets documents to reporters. Because this is this is the only until there's some there's actual information for people to objectively study, we're not going to make any steps further. Steps, uh, better steps will happen if 
good priests don't get weighed down and mm-hmm. beaten so much of, that they stay completely numb. Right. And that when they are in positions of power, they act the right way. That's right. what it's going to take. Yeah. It's going to take a generational change. It is. It, it, I mean, like, it's going to take... You know, and it's not. You know, it's, this is not an easy thing to do, because when you're making decisions as a priest, even as a pastor, you're affecting people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I do recognize, like you said earlier, they didn't have a language for this. So I do recognize maybe some people just didn't know. Even some bishops just didn't know what to do. Um, and I, I, I hope and pray that maybe today, some will know better. Um, but like I've had to make decisions on pastors as a pastor where because where I've had to remove people from ministry because they weren't safe or they refused to do safe ministry stuff and you're hated for it and I'll be honest folks that's really hard because you have to be okay with people um, creating rumors and judgments about you that are totally false and not based in the truth or reality but you can't say anything to come to your defense. All you can say is this is a decision I've made. I've made it for my own personal reasons and that's it. And sometimes you have to like not say anything to, yeah. to for the protection of the person you told can't be in ministry. Well, exactly. Too. Exactly. And, and so like it is not easy. So looking at this on a grander scale, it is, I, I recognize how difficult it is. Um, so I guess like what I'm trying to do with all this is I, I, I think a lot of our listeners might feel the same way, frustrated, angry, and just let you know we do too, and yeah. and we don't have. I wish I, I said I wish we had answers. I think we I think it's important to hold some feet to the fire, um, but you know in the end, like we can only do is become saints right now, it, and it it will mean a generational change in the church's leadership, which means that and. That will come because maybe the church will become smaller where we won't have to worry about all these institutional things and that we can worry about holiness again, that we can regain faith. It's a sign that the issues around faith and atheism and all this stuff predated the council and that this is one of the major issues we've dealt with and that we've never really encountered with. And it's forcing us to deal with it now. Yep. And we got to. It is time. And it means always starting with your own heart always and that is not fun that is not easy that requires change and all sorts of things that we don't like we gotta start with our own heart yeah i got nothing else well we've gone an hour or so okay <laughs> well thanks for listening if you still are <laughs> um yeah you know just let's let's here here's one thing that i think i think can bring some hope Let's remember to pray for each other. Yeah. Because that builds up the communion of the church. And even when we pray for our enemies, right, we have to. Mm-hmm. So let's pray. I know it sounds simplistic and pietistic. It's not. It is the place where the church's communion grows most intensely. Yeah. And also just keep in mind, if you when you talk about these things, and uh, post about these things. There are more victims out there than you know. Yeah. So just keep that in mind when you're talking about these things. Um, they really are. Absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, like, and that's the other thing. Just you know, 
and we almost should have started off with this and i feel bad that we didn't really i'm sorry to the victims i really am yeah i on i mean um i'm sorry that you weren't heard i'm sorry that you suffered this and i'm sorry to anybody who suffered anything at the hands of the church in this it's not okay it's not right and i wish i knew had more solutions but know that we're praying for you yeah so well everyone thanks for listening uh, yeah, let's transition into our uh, into our closing bit. <laughs> the way we end the podcast. Uh, <laughs> please, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all those places. Please leave a review. Tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus said you must love your enemies. You can find me on Twitter at fr harrison. You can find me checking out the new Clerically Speaking mug uh, on our Clerically Speaking shop with, with Nick's, producer Nick's face on an image of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's what, ridiculous. What's the, it's web, awesome. what's the web address for that? I should know that. I should know I it too. Um, anyways, while you look that up, uh, you can find the podcast on, at Facebook at Clerically Speaking, at, on Twitter at ClericalPod. You can email us clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. And um, we're just going to wait for this link here. I'm going to just hold it, you know, just yeah, keep on. There you go. There it's, go. Uh, it's, uh, t- it's at teespring.com slash clerically speaking or something along those lines. Something along those lines, yeah. And you can find check the link. Check out our website. You'll you can find, check, it, you can find the link on our website, clericallyspeaking.com, on our Facebook page and on Twitter. So we will see you guys all next week. God bless. <laughs> Peace. That mug is so ridiculous.